Well, hi, everyone. I'm Janet B. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. And let me add my welcome to Melissa's. It's really happy to be here with you all. I've moved to North Carolina, so I'm allowed to say y'all now. It is the greatest word. It is so much better than you guys. It's just like, I love it. So anyway, y'all, um, last week we did the first half of We Agnostics. And so I just do a really quick recap for those of y'all who weren't here. Um, the first thing we did is it said, the chapter starts out by saying, okay, before we start this, it says, you've learned something of alcoholism. You've learned something of compulsive eating. And so we talked about what did we learn? What have we learned that before we get to step two, we really need to make sure we have solidified in our brains. And it's at the very bottom of page 43. It says once more. So, you know, like at school, if a teacher says once more, they're hammering it home. That means guys, this is important. The alcoholic, the compulsive eater at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, the first compulsive bite, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power, capital H, capital P. So it says, they say no other human being. So the group can't be my higher power. I need to find the higher power. So we turn the page and it starts, we agnostics. So this chapter is written to people who say, I don't know if I believe in God. And they tell us, they tell us that's okay. You don't need to know um, at this point, but you have to get to that point. And they tell us, they kind of take us on a little journey. Page 45, they tell us what our problem is. Not lack of a great food plan, not lack of knowledge, um, not lack of understanding how I got this illness, but lack of power. That was our dilemma. So it says we had to find a power by which we could live and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. So then it goes and it starts giving us some clues and information about this power. Favorite part, page 45, it says, the main object of this book is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. So that tells me that there's a power bigger than me that will solve my, my problem. So what does that tell me about this power? If this power can solve my problem, this power has to be able to think. I mean, the wind is a power stronger than I am, but the wind can't think and figure out how to solve problems. So this being, this higher power has to be able to think. And then this power has to be strong because I consider myself a fairly bright woman and I couldn't figure out how to solve this problem. And this being could be smart, could be strong, but wouldn't have to solve my problem. So if this power is going to solve my problem, this power must care about me. So I've got my first clues about God as I understand him. Smart, powerful, can think, and cares about me. So that's a God I might be interested in. But then it goes on and tells us a lot of us have prejudices. And it lists um, what the prejudices are, that well, they put them all in a paragraph and then I distilled them into a list that maybe the God we were brought up with didn't work. The concept of God that either we were taught or that was modeled to us 
didn't sometimes we think well only weak people believe in god sometimes we think if there was a god he wouldn't run the universe so poorly so there can't be a god or we might say there's so many people who say they're godly but they're really rotten people or um one that i think is true for a lot of us if i believe in god i can't do what i want so the book tells us we have to like look at our prejudices, look at the things that may stop us from believing in God. And then, so if we just like kind of flip ahead to page 51, it tells us at the top of the page, it says, leaving aside the drink question or the food question, recovered people tell that living was so unsatisfactory. So even aside from drinking, aside from binging, we are people who should copyright the word lonely because we know loneliness the way that earth people don't, right? I mean, I can remember being in a room with a hundred people and feeling like there was like a glass cage around me. Um, so they say living was so unsatisfactory, but a change came over them. And then they say, when many hundreds of people are able to say the consciousness of the presence of God is today the most important fact of our lives. They present a powerful reason why one should have faith. So they're saying they are aware that there is a God and that they know he's present, not just like up there in the cloud somewhere, but the presence of God. So it's like, we know that there's a God. And they say, okay, you know, yeah, you say you may not believe it, but People are ready to change their point of view about so many things. And the example they give is um, a longshoreman who reads about a rocket going to the moon and says, I bet they do, maybe not so long either. Um, and they say, people think that all the time. I, I was thinking about this today when I was in my 20s. My boyfriend at the time got a personal computer. It was like the biggest deal. He won it in some lottery. And then I remember going to work and my boss had a car that actually had a phone in it, you know, connected to the car. And that was a big deal. And now it's like phone connected to a car. You know, you can just have like a phone you could stick in your pocket. So we're always like accepting these new things, these new gadgets, these new ideas that come along. And then it says, okay, we had to ask ourselves why we shouldn't apply to our human problems the same readiness to change our point of view, to say maybe there is a God. And what kind of human problems did they say we have? Did they say we couldn't put the alcohol down? We couldn't put the food down? That's not what they said. They said we were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotions. We were miserable, depressed, couldn't make a living, felt useless, fearful, unhappy, couldn't be of real help to other people. Basically, if we're living this way, if we're feeling this, they're saying like, that's a life in self-will. And then they say, wasn't a solution of these bedevilments more important than whether we should see newsreels of lunar flight, whether we figure out if man goes to the moon? And the solution they put forth is a relationship with God. And they say it's the solution of these bedevilments. This really weird word. And I was um, at a OA convention and I heard someone define the word bedevilments to be controlled as if by devils. And the steps cut the puppet strings. 
right? So that, you know, we live a life, I believe, either illness controlled or God controlled. I can't control my own life. I've made that clear. Breezy or free water is um, water. Melissa, you got to um, be on the mute patrol. Okay, we got it. Wait. Okay, so, so they're telling us that others solve their problems by a simple reliance on the spirit of the universe. So I'm thinking about that. Okay, if someone says, okay, I want to rely on the spirit of the universe. I want to rely on God. What does that mean? How do we do it? And I think this is what we do. It's very, they say a simple reliance. So it's got to be simple, simple, but not always easy. It means in any given situation, I try and think, what would God have me do without worrying about what's going to happen if I do the right thing? It means I'm going to do what I think is the right thing and trust God with the results. And when we live like that, it's simple. We don't have to, you know, worry about everything. We don't have to drive ourselves crazy trying to control things. It's like, God, what do you want me to do in this situation? And I will trust you with the outcome. And says, we saw other people doing it. So we had to stop doubting the power of God. So someone isn't sure if there is a God, it says one thing we can do is look and see how God has solved problems for other people. Make calls to people who are recovered. Ask them how they did it. Ask them how they got their relationship with God. It says, our ideas didn't work, but the God idea did. Okay, what's the God idea, right? I'd always believed in God. I had an idea about God. He existed. But it was as irrelevant to me as me knowing that King Charles, yes, King Charles now is the King of England. I know it. I believe it. it it's, I, it's irrelevant to me. But the God idea, the idea that God can come in to our hearts, as it says on page 25, and a, rearrange our hearts in a way that is miraculous. The idea of God is that God is still in the miracle business. Our book is clear. The age of miracles is still with us. So what do we do? We've admitted we're powerless over food and our lives are unmanageable. We're willing to go to any lengths because if we're not, it's not gonna work. And then it tells us the next thing we need is faith. And they say the Wright brothers, almost childish faith that they could build a machine which would fly was the mainspring of their accomplishment. Without that, nothing could have happened. Okay, I think that's weird, right? When I first read it, because if, if you asked anyone, why did the Wright brothers succeed? We would say they were great at math. They knew the principles of aerodynamics, but they're saying their almost childish faith that they could build an airplane was what happened, was what caused it to happen. Well, how come? And this is what I think. So we all know in the physical world, money or a credit card is the currency, right? If I want groceries, I go to the store, I hand the clerk a 50. If I wanna fill up my car, I hand the gas station attendant money or my credit card and I get 
and I get my goods. Well, I can't hand God a credit card or a $50 bill. What's the currency in the spiritual world? And they're telling us that the currency in the spiritual world is faith. That believing that God can restore me to sanity actually sets something in motion. That faith is currency is this in the spiritual world. So the Wright brothers had faith that they could build an airplane. So we have faith, we come to believe that God could restore us to sanity. And how does it work? Well, first we look and see how it's working with other people. We clear away the prejudices that are blocking us from believing ourselves. And we see as we start taking these baby steps, doing what our sponsors tell us to, um, doing what we think God, if he existed, would ask us to. I mean, we all could agree that if there was a God, he would want us to be honest, to think about other people, to do self-sacrificing acts for the good of others. We start doing them and then we say, you know what? I haven't thought about food for 10 minutes. And then I haven't thought about food for a couple of hours. And then, oh my gosh, except for when it was time to eat, I didn't think about food today. And the more we progress, the more and more we have those times where we're not thinking about food. So we start with faith, with believing that if God could do it for you, he could do it for me. And by the way, one of the biggest things that gets in the way, so we'll try and get that out of the way right here, is um, shame. People feel I'm not worthy. I don't deserve it. And I will say that nowhere in this big book is worthiness made a requirement, only willingness, only willing to do the work. So if you're like I was and felt like I don't deserve it, it's okay, you can recover. And by the way, I still feel I don't deserve it. I believe that God has given me a hundred million times more than anything I deserve, but it's okay. He never re required that I deserve it, only that I was willing to do this work, to look for him. And when I get a relationship with him to help others. So on page 53, they go ahead and they say, they believe that faith is reasonable. And they tell us when we became alcoholics, compulsive eaters crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we couldn't postpone or evade. We had two choices. Either God is everything or else he is nothing. They say God either is or he isn't. What was our choice to be? So they're saying faith is a decision, that I can make a decision. Well, we don't want to be dishonest. So we don't want to pray, dear God, I know you exist. If if we don't really believe that, that's dishonest. Um, and remember, God won't coexist with dishonesty. But we can say this, God, I'm not sure you exist, but I hope you do. And I'm going to, I can assume either that you do or you don't. I'm going to assume that you do. And then I'm going to act in ways that I believe if you existed, you would want me to. And if you do, in fact, exist, please help me. Like, I think God would honor a prayer like that because it's honest. But they're really clear when they say either God is everything or else he's nothing. Now, when they say God is everything, I don't believe they're being like all existential and saying, oh, God is this pen. You know, I think it means either we give God everything or it's as if we give God nothing. I can't give him my food plan and cheat on my income taxes. God gets 
my marriage, my kids, my health, um, my life, my job, my food, my friend, God, God gets it all. And I try and do, I fail miserably lots of times, but my, I guess my life mission statement is to surrender and submit to his will. So they say, okay, uh, you know, we couldn't, we can't duck the issue anymore. Reason had brought us so far, but let's look at the, there's three other things that aren't reason that can lead us to God. And they say faith, love, and worship over the next couple pages. They say, we all have faith in something, right? We, I have faith in my ability to think. I have faith to believe that, you know, if I see the color, a color, I can say, oh, that color is white or black or green. I have faith in my own intellect. And they say, yeah, we've all been faithful to the God of reason. And it says worship. We've all worshiped something. Um, people, other people. Well, that was me when I was younger, right? Always worshiping, you know, the boyfriend that I wanted. Sentiment, you know, writing these like love poems about these boys who didn't like me back. When I was in high school, I was the queen of soppy love poems, right? Like, oh, we're both falling asleep under the same moon tonight, you know, thinking like, and I thought that was just so romantic and wonderful. It was, you know, I had a crush on a boy who didn't know I existed. That's all it was. Um, but I worshiped my own sentiment, things, right? Or clothes, our jobs, money, and ourselves. Why doesn't the world just turn around me and do everything that I want it to? And it says, sometimes we have better motives, right? We'll worship the sunset, a sea, or a flower. Um, I don't believe we're supposed to worship these things. I suppose I believe we're supposed to worship the creator who gave us those things to enjoy. Um, but we're hardwired to worship and we're hardwired to love. And love doesn't have very much to do with reason. I mean, if you asked me like, why do I love my kids? It's like, I could say yes, because they're my kids, but I, there's just this fierce love that wells up inside me. Um, I just love them. It doesn't have to do with reason. I don't sit there and say, well, because you know they're smart or they're kind or they're this. I just love them. So they say, we all have the capacity for faith, worship, and love. And they say, imagine life without that, right? What if there was no faith in anything, no worship of anything, no love? That life would, you know, not really be any be anything worth having. Um, and they say, but this shows us reason isn't everything. And they say there's another kind of flight, right? They talked about the Wright brothers and their kind of flight. And they say, but there's another kind of flight. Page 55. A spiritual liberation from this world, people who rose above those problems. They said God made these things possible and we only smiled. We had seen spiritual release, but like to tell ourselves it wasn't true. Okay, why would we wanna tell ourselves it wasn't true if we see other people having spiritual belief, release? Because we are people who sometimes would rather be right than get healthy. We would rather be right than get healthy. Well, we gotta knock that off. Um, so again, we can start believing by examining what God has done for others. And then it tells us, actually, we were fooling ourselves. Here's my favorite line in the book. 
For deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. Isn't that beautiful? It says, it may be obscured by calamity, pomp, worship of other things, but in some form or other, it is there. Okay, so they're saying deep down in all of us is the fundamental idea of God. It's in us. So that means when God created me, he created two lungs, two kidneys, one heart, one stomach, and somewhere in that mix, he planted the fundamental idea of himself, that he loved me, loves us so much that he put the idea of himself inside us. And they say, but it can be obscured, just like cataracts can block our view of things in the physical world. We can have spiritual cataracts. And what are the things that block us? Calamity bad things that have happened, right? Thinking if there was a God, why would he allow X, Y, and Z to happen? War, poverty, starving children. Um, that was Bill Wilson's problem. On page 11, he says, you know, the war, the chicanery, the things I'd seen in the war, he went so far as to say, if there was a devil, he seemed the boss. Um, but what was he told? It was like, yeah, I you know. Ebby said to him, basically, Bill, I don't know. All I know is God is good. And when I surrendered my life to him, the desire to drink was lifted right out of me. So the way I deal with that is I just say, I don't know why God allows things like human trafficking or other things, but um, I know that God is good and I'm in the world to play the role that he assigns me. And when I do that, life just works. So another spiritual cataract, pomp, that's just me thinking that I'm on the throne and that the world should revolve around me and worship of other things, you know, a relationship, having a baby, how my kids are doing, are my kids going to church or, you know, just every, all the life circumstances. And it tells us, but in some form or another, this belief in God is there for faith and a power greater than ourselves and miraculous demonstrations of that power or facts as old as man himself. I mean, what good is faith if we don't have miraculous demonstrations? If I came to really believe in God, but I was still binging my brains out, that wouldn't be any good. But this is a God who works miracles in our lives. And it tells us um, we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. And how do we search? Um, I think one way is by spending time with him. I know whenever I sponsor someone, I tell her she has to spend at least 30 minutes in the morning with God. Because when you want to have a relationship with someone, you have to spend time with them. So prayer, meditation, spiritual reading. And I say, like, let's find spiritual reading that excites us. There's so much good stuff out there you know, no matter what our religion, I looked up to see what the founders of AA studied and I got those books. So we search fearlessly and they tell us we can only clear the ground a bit. Our testimony, they wanted to help us sweep away prejudice, to think honestly and to search diligently, sweep away prejudice. Our own concept of God can be an impediment to our relationship with God. And then they really give us a promise. With this attitude, you cannot fail. The consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. And then they tell us the story, which is known as the minister's son. And if um, you ever want to read his full story, it's called Our Southern Friend. 
So if we go to page 56, we will see about our, the minister's son. And it has a few things in his life. Um, he was rebellious. Um, there was calamity in his family, suicide, um, fatal illness. He had resentment. So he's full of pride, calamity, resentment. And he ended up in a hospital as an alcoholic. And while he was there, he was approached by an alcoholic who'd had a spiritual experience. And you can just hear his self-pity. He says, if there is a God, he certainly hasn't done something for me, anything for me. But later in his room, he says, was it possible all the religious people I've known are wrong? Okay, what happened between him saying, God hasn't done anything for me to maybe I'm wrong? So to get that answer, we go into the story, our Southern friend on page 214, we see that once he's done with his little self-pity binge, he goes to talk to his friend who'd had an who'd had a spiritual experience. And his friend says, you think you're hopeless, don't you? And he says, I know it. And the man says, well, you're not. There are men on the streets of New York today who were worse than you and they don't drink anymore. And then he asks him, are you willing to be honest? Are you willing to set right your wrongs? Are you willing to think about other people? And he says, I'll do anything. So he had step one and willingness, but not step two yet. The man says to him, all your troubles are over. And then he's not sure. And he thinks, could it be? And he, and he goes back to the guy and he says, how does prayer fit into this thing? And I think this is so important. Well, he answers, you've probably tried praying like I have. When you've been in a jam, you said, God, please do this or that. And if it turned out your way, that was the last of it. And if it didn't, you said, there isn't any God or he doesn't do anything for me, right? And the minister's son said, yes. And then the man said, that isn't the way. The thing I do is to say, God, here I am and here are all my troubles. I've made a mess of things and can't do anything about it. You take me and all my troubles and do anything you want with me. Does that answer your question? And this is what the minister's son said. Yes, it does. And he says, I return to bed. It doesn't make sense. Suddenly I feel a wave of utter hopelessness sweep over me. I'm in the bottom of hell. And there a tremendous hope is born. It might be true. I tumble out of bed onto my knees. I know not what I say, but slowly a great peace comes to me. I feel lifted up. I believe in God. I crawl back into bed and sleep like a child. So there he was. And it, um, back in the chapter we agnostics, page 56, it says, he stood in the presence of infinite power and love. The barriers he had built through the years were swept away. God didn't make him take down his own barriers. God swept them away. It says, he stepped from bridge to shore. For the first time, he lived in conscious companionship with his creator. His alcoholic problem was taken away. And guys, that is how it works. When we surrender to God, God comes in and takes it away. On page 57, it says, save for a few brief moments of temptation, the thought of drink has never returned. And at such times, a great revulsion has risen up in him. Seemingly, he could not drink even if he would. 
God had restored his sanity. Remember on page 84 of the book, it's read after a lot of um, Overeaters Anonymous meetings in the promises. It talks about what happens after we get through the first nine steps. And it says, we've ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol or food, for by this time, sanity will have returned. Just like this guy said, God had restored his sanity. And how is that? What does that mean to have sanity return, restored? We will seldom be interested in liquor, seldom be interested in food, not on our food plan. If tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. We don't sit there and do an analysis of the hot flame. It's automatic. We react sanely and normally. We will find this has happened automatically. Our new attitude toward liquor or food has been given us. It's a gift from God without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. It's a miracle. He experienced the miracle. And again, page 57, they say, what is this but a miracle of healing? Yet its elements are simple. I always get a kick out of that line. Its elements are simple. Okay, you're telling me the elements of a miracle are simple, that I can reproduce a miracle, that they can tell us how to mass produce miracles. And they say, yes, circumstances made him willing to believe. He took a step one. So he was willing, willing to believe. Step two, he humbly offered himself to his maker. His step three, his surrender. Then he knew. It doesn't work where we say, okay, God, you proved to me that you exist. Then I'll surrender to you. You know, when we're beaten down the way that I was, the way Melissa was, it's like, I got, there's no door number two. If God's behind door number one, I'm all out of options. This is the last stop on the train. And then they go on and they finish by saying, even so, the same way that, that he did for the minister's son, God has restored us all, 100% of us, to our right minds. Um, once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. That's in chapter five of the book. When he got his spiritual life in order, his mind got straightened out. They say, to this man, the revelation was sudden. Some of us grow into it more slowly. So we don't have to worry if we get on our knees one day and you know we get up two minutes later and nothing happens. It's okay. Um, but he has come to all who have honestly sought him. Over in this chapter, we see the word seek. Over and over, God wants us to seek him. Um, but I believe that we're only seeking him because he sought us out first. He launched a search and rescue mission for us first. And then the chapter just concludes with a promise. When we drew near to him through prayer, meditation, spiritual reading, surrender, and being nice to his other kids, he discloses himself to us. And I really believe, and I've seen over and over that um, we can all experience a miracle of healing.